Father, as Sam comes up and exegetes or explains your word, bring out the meaning that we find in it and connect our hearts back to the gospel. I pray that all of his efforts would be effective because your spirit has graciously and kindly uh, made the hearts of what otherwise would be dead hearts alive and hear the sermon so that your word may not land on empty ears, but rather on ears that rejoice and embrace the gospel message that you'll proclaim. Pray for Sam today, Father, that he would preach clearly and that he would preach in such a way that honors you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning, friends. Okay, there we go. Morning, friends. Uh, today, we'll be continuing in our study in the series of the Book of Acts. And I think it's worth reminding ourselves at this point where we are in this incredible history of the early church, right? Today, we're going to be in chapter 20 of this book, and we can consider ourselves at being at like the end of the third act of the book of Acts, right? So let's recap just a little bit what's happened so far in the book of Acts so we can recenter ourselves in the story because we're at a bit of a crossroads here, okay? So in the first act of the book of Acts, which is from chapters 1 to 8, we first see the risen Christ in Jerusalem commissioning his disciples to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of this earth. And we can see the Holy Spirit come down and empower the disciples, allowing them to preach the gospel, and they did so boldly while also performing many signs and wonders and miracles to validate that what they were saying was really from God. And consequently, there in Jerusalem, thousands committed to follow Jesus, and the first Christian communities began to form, and the Christian movement really kicked off. By the time we get to the second part, the second act of the book of Acts, chapters 9 to 12, we see this gospel-driven movement start to move out from Jerusalem. It began to spread, primarily through the disciples of Christ who were there in Jerusalem. And it spread to the regions of Judea and Samaria. At the same time, at this point, we were introduced to this Paul guy who, although was initially opposed to the gospel, he had a radical encounter with the risen Christ, and now he joins the work of the apostles in spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. So now, in the section that we're in, that started in chapter 13, we've been following along in the adventures of Paul and company, who labored to preach the gospel to what they thought was, at this point, the ends of this earth. And we've been studying Paul's travels, both the hardships he faced and the wonderful works of God that's been done through him. So now here at chapter 20, where we're at, we're at the end of this section, at the end of Paul's third missionary journey before the final act in the book of Acts. That'll start later in chapter 21 when Paul will make his final journey, first to Jerusalem and then to Rome, where Paul knows there are people with bad intentions waiting there for him if he goes anyway for the sake of the gospel. So we can consider what we're reading today basically as Paul going on his farewell tour 
This is probably the last opportunity he has to minister to these people and the last time he will get to bless these leaders. And in this chapter, actually, we might be able to see some of the deepest expositions, the deepest outpourings of Paul's pastoral heart, right? Paul wasn't just a theologian, but he was deeply committed and gospel-centered pastor. But that is not the part of the chapter we'll be studying today, right? Sorry, that's going to be next week. Rather, this week we're going to be reading the section right before that, and it's the relatively obscure section about Paul ministering and a kid falling to death mid-sermon, right? That probably didn't make it into the Jesus Storybook Bible. A sort of section where if we're just reading through the book of Acts, we might probably just like quickly gloss over it and just stop or stop for a second and be like, what? That happened? And that's okay, right? Sometimes that happens when you're studying the Bible. But here at TCC, we're committed to preaching and studying the whole book while trusting that all of Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for training in righteousness. And if we look closely at this passage, I think, what we can see is that Luke is reinforcing some of the major themes that we've been studying in the book of Acts that we would do well to all remember. Okay, so with that, probably overly long introduction, let's read Acts chapter 20, verse 1 to 12, our passage today. This is the Word of God. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he'd gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So Pater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them. Right, intending to depart the next day as he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lambs in the upper room where we gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms and said, Do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And the youth took them away alive and were not a little comforted. Right. So clearly the moral of that story is that I shouldn't preach for too long or else someone might literally die of boredom. So that's it. I don't want to kill anyone. Hallelujah. Amen. Sermon over. Let's pray. I'm just kidding, guys. Sorry. But for real, though, it seems like here, right, what Luke was trying to show through the story is that what really happens when the gospel mission advances, how this happened, what should happen when this happens, and why this should happen. Okay, so these are the three things we'll try to look at from our passage today, our three points. 
right? The gospel mission advances, point one, through self-sacrificial love, point two, in order to gather a multicultural family into fellowship, and point three, so that we can be awakened unto life. Okay, so we'll look at these points this morning. May the Lord be with us as we meditate upon God's Word. So, point one, the gospel mission advances through self-sacrificial love. The first thing that sticks out when we think about this passage in verses 1 to 3, we see how Paul had close to no regard for his own safety, and he had an absolute dedication to the ministry of the gospel. Now, Luke's narrative right here doesn't go into all the details, but if we piece together the information from Paul's letters and what has happened so far in the book of Acts, we can see that a lot was actually going on here. First, right, like remember what literally just happened in the passage we studied last week before this. There was an angry mob out to get Paul and his companions. Paul caused a riot, not because he did anything wrong, but because uh, the way of Jesus Paul was inviting people into was so subversive to the culture and destructive to the idols of that culture that if enough people came to follow Jesus, even the economy can be disrupted. Right, which usually makes people kind of anxious and upset. So he definitely made some enemies there in Ephesus. And what does Luke tell us in verse 1? That again, right, this near-death experience didn't deter Paul from his ministry. He finished what he was there to do. He encouraged them, then brushed the dust off his feet and moved on to the next region God was calling him to preach the gospel. This time to Macedonia, right? A place where he's been through before. And if you remember the last time he was there in verse 16 and 17, he got put in prison in Philippi. And in Thessalonica, which was in Macedonia, an angry mob came after him there too. So this wasn't exactly right, the safest place for him to go. And after he finished his ministry in Macedonia, verse 2 tells us, he ends up in Greece. Most commentators agree that it talks about the region of Greece generally, but it's probably most likely specifically referring to Corinth. And if we remember chapter 18, last time he was in Corinth, the Jews made a united attack against him and brought him before the tribunal, right? another angry mob after Paul. Yet this didn't deter Paul either. Because in fact, we know from the letter of 1 Corinthians, right, the church there had some serious problems and Paul loved them so much that he had to come back and to sort some things out and reconcile with them. And most commentators even agree that this was a time where Paul found the time to write the most comprehensive explanation of the gospel ever written, the letter to the Romans that we studied all of last year. So it's been a productive few months there for Paul in retrospect. And to absolutely nobody's surprise at this point, right, things got tense again there for Paul in Greek. This time by the Jews, again, who was plotting against him, trying to find a way to silence him once for all, which meant Paul had to have some modifications to his travel plans. So instead of going to Jerusalem via Syria, Paul had to make a detour through Macedonia but this time, his destination was already set, right? Paul was determined to go to Jerusalem, the homeland, the kampung of the Jews. And he wasn't escaping, I mean, trying to go to Jerusalem to escape the Jews, right? That would be a ridiculous plan. It's like right? 
running to Medan to escape to Batak. It doesn't work. But he actually wanted to go there because Jerusalem was going through some hard times. There was a famine and the church there needed to be served. And so he was going to go there to deliver some alms, which actually worked out that he had to take a detour to Macedonia because in 2 Corinthians, he tells us that the churches there had already pledged generously to support the church in Jerusalem. And this way, Paul got to pick up the alms and deliver them personally to make sure where he got needed where they uh, ended up where they needed to be. Friends, the more we know about the background behind the places he was going on on this trip and the reasons for his travel, the more we can appreciate that Paul was completely dedicated to the gospel mission. He spared nothing of himself in order that the gospel may be preached and those who follow Jesus may be served and encouraged. In fact, if you look further in the chapter, this is what Paul says about his life in verse 24 of his chapter. He says, But I do not account of my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of of the grace of God. Wow, right? What a guy. Paul was not only someone who had profound theological insight, a clear writer, a confident communicator, but Paul didn't only preach the gospel. He lived the gospel. Like our Lord Jesus, he was willing to sacrifice anything, even his own life, so that he can invite people to this gospel of grace to be reconciled with God. This is what Paul saw that all things have suffered as, as this joyful participation in the sufferings of Christ. He was living out Christ's life. Therefore, he didn't go through all the sorrows he had to endure with resentment or bitterness, but with this admirable sense of duty, this unshakable joy and an everlasting life. Uh, Everlasting hope. And friends, what was the fruit of all that he went through? Right? Not only were there uh, communities of Christians that were created, but we, as we can see from verses 4 to 6, that his ministry actually recruited colleagues, co-workers, and companions to the gospel mission who will stick with him and suffer with him to the very end for the sake of the gospel. In these verses, Luke goes through the trouble of naming them even telling us where they're from. And if we survey again the missionary travels in chapters 13 to 20, we see that these people actually represented the fruits of his labor. So Pater, Aristarchus, Secondus, started following Jesus through Paul's second missionary journey in Macedonia. Timothy and Gaius, he met uh, and were converted through his first missionary journey. And the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus, he most likely met in his most recent missionary journey in Asia Minor. So wherever Paul went, Luke is trying to say, Paul rallied around him loyal friends from all sorts of background who will support him no matter the circumstance. So I personally, friends, find it dumbfounding that what many of the churches offer today is not encouragement through the gospel and self-sacrificial love, 
but rather just this individualistic personal salvation and blessings and a prosperous life. Where the leaders that we often admire and follow are the ones with the biggest churches, the ones flying on private jets and wearing branded clothing, or the high and mighty ivory tower academics who speaks most eloquently and sells the most book. Not that any of these things are sinful in and of themselves. But what we can really see in the book of Acts is that the church has experienced its most profound growth and has produced its best ministers is when its leaders are committed to the gospel mission and the crucible of suffering for the sake of others. In other words, friends, a faithful, gospel-centered message and a consistent, gospel-driven life is what is necessary for the gospel movement to advance. We've seen this in the book of Acts, and in fact, throughout all of church history, the gospel is the only thing attractive enough to unite people who come from seemingly opposing cultural and socioeconomic backgrounds into the same family, under the same banner, worshiping the same God. And once this family has been gathered, what we consistently see happen in the book of Acts is that they will make very intentional efforts to gather together regularly, which is point two. The gospel mission advances in order to gather a multicultural family into fellowship. Okay, so picking up back into our narrative. Paul and the seven diverse companions we talked about earlier and also Luke, the author of Acts, right? Notice the we language there in verse 6. Went about doing ministry. And the nine of them ended up uh, in Troas where they were planning to spend a week. And then in verse 7 says that on the last day, they gathered with the local church to break bread. It's a key phrase. Now, this activity of breaking bread literally refers to a time of sharing food and eating together, Right? Since the very first converts in chapter 2, right, we saw that this is a thing that Christian communities do. It's a common feature to break bread in people's homes. And we know from letters of Paul, like 1 Corinthians and Colossians, for example, that it wasn't just going over to someone's house to have a meal, right? They would also be praying, singing songs together. And as we saw with what Paul was doing in our text, there would usually be a message, Now, where do we usually do these things now in the 21st century, right? At church, right? I mean, apart from having an actual meal together, which I wish we can do. It's just logistically a bit complicated. But here at CCC, we celebrate the meaning of that meal on a monthly basis, like we're going to do today during communion. So although we as a church in the 21st century try to capture all of the same elements of these house church gatherings to break bread, the gatherings of the early church actually were much more informal than the Sunday services we might think of today, right? Or at least the ones I've grown up with. It's not at all a performance by the preacher, the liturgist, or the band, right? Nor was it this rigid, you know, formal occasion where everybody has to be all solemn and uptight, as the whole premise of these gatherings was primarily fellowship, 
Right? It's like going to grandma's house for Sunday lunch or sincha or something. I don't celebrate sincha. I don't know. But right, the community of, that belie- of believers in that city gathered together intentionally to celebrate this familial unity that we have under the Lord Jesus, to praise Him for His generous grace and for uniting us as well as spending this time enjoying each other as family. Now notice in verse 7, right? Luke very intentionally mentions the day this gathering took place. He didn't do that before, right? And he didn't really need to do that here. So it seems like here, this wasn't like an impromptu gathering for the occasion of Paul's last day, but it was in fact something that they regularly did. Many theologians in the past has used this passage as one of the texts uh, that proves that Christians have been going to church on Sundays since the very beginning, since the early church. Because our Lord Jesus, coincidentally, was also raised from the grave on Sunday. So it seems like celebrating His resurrection on the same day seems appropriate. But this is not a hard and fast rule. And Paul himself told us to not argue about Sabbath days and the letter to the Colossians. So let's not overstress the importance of Sundays of being the day of worship. But nonetheless, it seems clear that it's the regular part of the weekly routine of the followers of Jesus since the alert church, as it still should be today, to gather together to fellowship under the name of the Lord. And this fellowship wasn't a chore for the people of the early church. It wasn't a burden. But it's something that they would have looked forward to. Because there, not only that they get to be encouraged by the message of the gospel, but it is also only in this weekly gathering of believers in the name of the Lord that they get to experience something that they could not experience in the culture they live in. Let's circle back to that idea of breaking bread, to share a table together and have a meal. People didn't just casually do that with anyone in that culture. Jews, for example, were forbidden to share a table with the Gentiles, who they considered dirty according to the ceremonial law. We can recall that in chapter 10, chapter 11 rather, the apostle Peter was criticized for doing just that. But here was Paul, who was super Jewish, along with other Jews, sharing a table, sharing fellowship and a meal with a bunch of half-Jews and even straight-up Gentiles. And it was a celebrated thing. And you also have to remember that there are very strict social hierarchies in Roman culture. And, where, and they had a society where slaves were treated as second-class citizens. But here was Aristarchus, which was a name typically given to someone of high social standing. And Secundus, which was a name that would typically be given to slaves, doing ministry together. Right? That doesn't normally happen back then. And so the point is that it was in the gathering of God's people where all cultural and social barriers that would usually divide people and drive people apart are torn down. Because on this occasion, whoever we are in our society, whatever we do outside of this gathering ceases to matter. Whatever rank, whatever prestige that we have, who we think we are, doesn't matter because ultimately we must see each other as equals because we are all subjects of the same king, the same head of the church, Jesus Christ. 
And in fact, in Christ, we are all equally siblings, adopted by the same Heavenly Father. Now, this leads me to the question, right? What has happened to the church that sometimes this blessed feeling of absolute unity and equality, this sharing together in Christ is so often lost? Where church might feel like this dry, weekly religious ritual and even a chore that we got to do lest we offend God or be seen as heathens by our families. Instead of the celebration and a gathering of families that we get to enjoy. Church no longer becomes a refuge from a world where we get to have rest from the burdens that we daily have to bear, but it becomes another burdensome thing where we have to act like everything is okay and be on our best behavior. Somehow, church has become a place where we got to go, not a place where we get to go. I mean, I certainly have felt that way before at times. And don't get me wrong, right? The gathering in the name of the Lord is not just a casual social event. It's still a weighty thing to be under the teaching of the Word of God and in the presence of God. And we got to do it if we ever hope to grow as Christians. And indeed, there is a certain decorum that is expected so that we don't distract ourselves and other people from the fact that we are gathering in the name of the Lord. But I think, and, and, and the pandemic should really have taught us this, the problem is that most often we have forgotten about how much of a privilege it is that we get to be amongst the assembly of God's people. And at least for me, that happens when I feel distant from the God we are worshiping here at church such that I don't feel like I belong amongst His people. When God seems to me like an authority I have to appease, instead my Heavenly Father, who's been generous to me, and I want to please. And friends, the only cure for that is by having this experiential knowledge of God's love for us, which can only be done in community. Because it's one thing to read and meditate upon how much God loves us, and quite another, when we actually experience God's love through the brothers and sisters in Christ who knows you and is known by you. Because otherwise, friends, God's love for us will remain a theory and will always feel like strangers in the house of the Lord. Friends, the day is drawing near when we will know the fullness of the love of God, when we will see our Heavenly Father face to face and we get the feast in our heavenly home. However, until then, let us not neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some, but let us encourage one another, showing each other the love of God. This is the closest thing we'll ever get to experience in this side of glory of what heaven will be when Jesus is actually here physically. And it is only because, only after we have gotten this taste of heaven, can we really be comforted by the assurance that we've been awakened from death unto that which is truly life? Okay, so point three. The gospel mission advances so that we can be awakened unto life. Okay, so...
back to the story. Here they were gathering for worship, and apparently in verse 7 tells us that Paul got a little windy, a little long-winded, and he was leaving the next day, and he was aware, definitely, at this point, that this was probably the last time he was going to speak to this community. So he wanted to give them everything he possibly can, and he just kept on going until midnight. Then Luke tells us about this youth, right? And the youth there in the original Greek usually refers to someone between the ages of 8 and 14. His name was Eutychus, who was dangerously sitting at the window, right? Now that raises a lot of questions for me, like where were his parents? Why did they let this sleepy kid sit by the window, right? Feels like very irresponsible parenting, but there he was. Right? And it was late, and the room was basically candlelit, and he was probably feeling the breeze through his window. And so the situation there was pretty sleep-inducing. And this kid was like nodding off into sleep, right? like doing one of these, struggling to wake up. I've certainly done that before, I must confess. But unfortunately, Eutychus here didn't make it, right? He, he couldn't fight it, he couldn't keep it off, as Paul kept on preaching, and he fell asleep and fell from the window in the middle of the sermon from the third story to his death. Now, here's what is actually the funny thing about this incident. This guy's name, Eutychus, actually means, in Greek, the fortunate one, right? His name was Lucky, which is both somehow ironic and appropriate because luckily for him, the guy preaching there, the apostle of Paul, wasn't just a regular guy. He was an apostle of the Lord. So Paul went down to him, probably as everyone was freaking out, and he was like, chill guys, then just casually raised Eutychus back to life. Then after that, Paul went back and had communion and kept on preaching, right? The word there that's translated for converse is actually the Greek homileo, where we get the word homily, right? which basically, someone being bored to death or not, Paul was going to finish his sermon. So I guess the takeaway for me is that, you know, someone can even fall asleep when the Holy Spirit-inspired Apostle Paul has a sermon. So I really shouldn't be that offended if some of you guys sleep in my sermon from time to time. But I got to say, especially for you guys sitting up there, if you do fall when you fall asleep, I probably can't help you. So do your best to stay awake and stay away from the edges. But that's probably not what Luke wants us to take away from this story. Because how he tells the story, right, with the setting being in the upper room with the lamps and the specific words Luke uses to describe the events, what Luke primarily wants to reinforce is the legitimacy and the spiritual authority of Paul and his preaching. Luke wants to point him on equal standing as some, uh, with someone like Peter, right, who was a disciple of Christ who performed a similar miracle in chapter 9. And even with figures like Elijah and Elisha in the Old Testament, who similarly raised a child back to life by bending over to pray for him in First and Second Kings. You've got to look that story up. And like these stories of these miracles, what these are are what theologians call prophetic sign acts, where that these extraordinary actions of the prophets in this narrative, or in this case the apostles, is meant to convey an important truth from God. And what is this truth? 
Well, it can only be that all of us who are gathered here today, who confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the grave, we are all Eutychus. Lucky, fortunate ones. Because all of us were too once asleep in our sin. Right? In fact, all of humanity has fallen from grace and have become dead in our sins. The assurance of pardon we just read, Ephesians 2, makes that clear. And in this state of deadness, we all were walking in darkness, walking in disobedience against God, being ruled over by the desires of our sinful hearts, limited by the futility of our sinfully depraved minds, our hearts and minds completely dominated by sin and utterly unresponsive to the God who is the source of life and good. We, friends, were dead like Eutychus was. Yet God, in His infinite mercy, came down from heaven so that He can awaken us back to life. And we know that He did this by taking on flesh and blood and being born as Jesus of Nazareth. But unlike Paul, whose ministry was only able to resurrect Eutychus physically for a while, only for him to, ha to die again eventually, the resurrection of Christ will free us from death forever. It's just because Jesus defeated the sins that bound us to death on the cross. Because on the cross, Christ took to Himself death, the power of sins, for us, though we deserve it, and He didn't because He was free from sin. But because He was free from sin, death couldn't hold Him. And He rose from the grave unto a glorious life to give this life to us so that we too can rise from our graves and lay hold to that which is truly life. That's why Paul quotes Isaiah in Ephesians 5 that has referred to in his confession of sin. He says, Arise, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. Christ wants to shine upon you, friends. He is calling you to see Him. This is the ultimate message of comfort and encouragement that Paul self-sacrificially suffered unto death for so that we all can be awakened from our spiritual slumber and live in the light of Christ together in this diverse, multicultural, multi-ethnic family of God. So friends, if you think you may be spiritually sleeping right now, if you think you still are walking in darkness, and if you still feel like a stranger here in the house of the Lord, may this be the Lord's wake-up call to you. He wants to free you from your sin. He wants you to know Him, and He wants you to be His child and join His family. So if you're done sleeping, if you're done living in darkness, and you want to rise as His radiant child, you can come to Jesus, confess to Him, confess to the Lord, come to God in repentance, and come to Jesus in faith, and He will save you. And if you've done that, 
you are now family. You're my, you're our brother and sister in the Lord. So would you give us an opportunity to show our Father's love to you? I hope that you do. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we often live like we're asleep to you. We often neglect that you are there. It doesn't even cross our minds that you exist and that, you are, and that we live before you, yet you are a God who is infinitely generous, who continues to bless us and give us the grace that we need to not only sustain our physical lives, but to call us to yourselves, to yourself, Lord, week in and week out. Father, send us your Holy Spirit and give us this constant awareness of your presence. Make us awake, Lord, and allow us to feel at home amongst your people where we can truly feel and experience and get a taste of the life that you have for us, this life in abundance that you will give us in full, but you've graciously give us a chance to try now that we may look forward to the time when we will see you face to face. Amen. Amen.